After Japan bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941, a scrawny shipyard worker named, like many Americans, named Desmond Doss, didn't appreciate that, was disturbed by that, and decided to do something about it. As a Seventh-day Adventist, he had sworn never to take a human life. So he joined the military, the army, as a medic. As he, he started his training, the, the people in his platoon uh, weren't really appreciating that. I mean, he had sworn he would never take up arms, he didn't want to shoot a rifle, wouldn't even take a bayonet into, contact, into combat, and they didn't really like that. After training, his battalion was sent to Okinawa. There, they were met with the almost impossible task of taking the high ground in the middle of the island that was basically blocked by a 400-foot cliff the length of the island. So they had to scale the cliff. They used Navy cargo nets to do that. And then once up there, they had to take the high ground from a well-entrenched Japanese enemy. And so they engaged in the fight. As the men gained the high ground, uh, it was just bloody, it was brutal, it was chaos. And the fighting lasted all day. Finally, the Americans had to retreat and they were pushed back all the way to the edge of the cliff and then retreated da back down the cliff face. But they were agonizing because in the chaos, in the heat of the battle, they knew they left a bunch of their wounded soldiers up there that couldn't get down those nets. And as they were at the base of the cliff that night trying to figure out how to regroup and get back up there, they noticed a body being lowered down by a rope a wounded soldier. And they realized that somebody up there had, had let him down and they realized that medic Desmond Doss was up there doing that and all through the night, one man at a time was lowered down by ropes that Desmond would tie to them and wrap the rope around his stump and let them down. All night long, he was crawling through the chaos, through the battle, through the fire. It was dark. It was bloody. People were still shooting. The wounded GIs were trying to defend themselves, and it's all happening all night long. He's crawling through the battlefield, looking for wounded soldiers, going through the chaos, finding them, rendering aid, dragging them to the cliff, tying them in a rope, lowering them down all night long. At the end of the night, the army estimated that Desmond Doss had saved the lives of 100 men. Later, when they were telling him about that, he said, no, it couldn't have been 100. Uh, there, I don't think there was time for me to save 100, maybe 50. And he won the Medal of Honor the highest award in our country. As a matter of fact, when President Truman was putting the Medal of Honor around his neck, Truman said, I would rather have this medal than be the President of the United States. And from that day forward, people ask Desmond Doss over and over and over, 
as you are crawling through the chaos, as the enemy fire, everything's happening, what were you thinking? What were you thinking all night long? What were you saying? What was going on? And he always answered the same way. He said, the whole night I was praying, God, please let me just get one more. God, help me save one more man. God, please just one more. Don't you love stories like that? Where God takes ordinary people and then they do extraordinary things. And if they're willing. And of course, we, we hear stories like that. It stirs something inside of us. And uh, today we're wrapping up Colossians. And Paul is reminding us, he's reminding the Colossians, and today he's reminding us that we, all of us as believers, we are on a rescue mission to save just one more. And that's how we should view it. And why would that be? Why are we on a rescue mission? Well, because although we as human beings were made in the image of God, God allowed us free choice. We've all used that to sin against him. We've all been broken by sin, every single one of us. And there is justice and right and wrong in the universe. And because of that, our sin, our wrongs deserve punishment. We deserve punishment because there will be ultimate justice. And so that's a problem for all of us, but God, in his love for us, he sent Jesus Christ to come to this earth to live a perfect life and ultimately, although he had no sin of his own, to die on the cross to pay the punishment for our sin so that we can be reconciled back to God and our sins forgiven if we will respond to him in faith, if we will put our trust in Christ and Christ alone. And that's what Paul is reminding us here. I mean, I, I think a lot of us today, we feel the tension of, our, of a country, living in a country that is moving further and further and further away from God. And it seems the whole world is doing that. And we're losing ground. And God has called each one of us to rush into the chaos and to save just one more. To point people around us to Christ. And we should be praying, God, help me. Help me to reach just one more. And Paul's gonna close out this letter. And he's gonna tell us, hey, he's gonna tell us, like he told the Colossians, this is how you change the world. You want to change the world? It's not going to happen through politics, ultimately. I mean, we could stave off some of the decline. That's not going to save the world. Jesus Christ came to save the world, and we have that message to share with a lost and dying world. How to change the world is, as Paul finishes up Colossians, we're in Colossians 4, beginning with verse 2. He's going to tell us three ways to do that. And it simply starts this way. First of all, pray hard. Pray hard. 
Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. When he says devote, devote is actually has a root word of strength, to be strong, earnest striving, to be strongly persistent in prayer. Does that describe your prayer life? Strongly persistent in prayer. Devote yourself. Pray earnestly. Sing. And then, it's so easy for us, if we pray a lot at all, to be lazy in our prayers. We get into routines, we pray for our meals, nothing wrong with doing that, but but we're really not laboring in prayer. We're really not earnestly striving, seeking God in prayer to change the world. One life at a time. He's saying, keeping alert. This is spiritual watchfulness that we understand what's happening in the world around us and so we know how we should be praying, how we should direct our prayers. Be alert. I remember a few weeks ago, I was up in, uh, went to church at Grace Point. And while I was up there after church, it was a Sunday, I wasn't here. I felt like, oh, I have a little extra time. I, sw- I swung by another church, Pam and I, and I just, I, their service, you know, I wasn't gonna attend their service. I just kind of walked through as they were kind of doing full church mode. And one of the things I noticed is it was in between services there and they had a uniformed armed law enforcement person there. And I'm like, oh, this is, you know, I thought, yeah, that's, that's probably a good thing to have, a big church. But then I noticed the guy was over in a corner drinking coffee, kind of facing away from the crowd. And I'm like, oh, not the best way to do this probably. Probably should be watching. You know, he's there in case something happens. I guess he feels like somebody will let him know. But it just seems like, yeah, you'd think he'd be a little more alert, you know. He's probably working overtime or whatever. We get it. Keeping alert. Keeping alert. Spiritual. Watch was knowing what's happening. Knowing how to intercede. And then he mentions with an attitude of thanksgiving, this is what should motivate all of our prayers. Look what God has done for us. We've been loved, we've been created, we've been loved, we've been forgiven, we've been given new life. Grace has been poured into our life. We're a different person. We don't have to worry about the future. God's got it, it changes our life completely. And when we're living the Christian life that we do not deserve, we respond to God with this attitude of thanksgiving and that's what motivates our prayers. Because we want that same thing for other people. And then the next thing is here Paul's in jail and he's gonna ask them, I'll get to it in just a minute, he's gonna ask them to pray for him. Now, so Paul's like a pastor in jail, right? If I'm ever in jail and I'm asking for prayer, what do you think I'm asking for? Pray that I get out of jail. You know, that's, that's the way I'd be doing it. 
pray that I, that they get me out of jail. Pray that God will let me get out of jail. I'm in jail. That, that's not how Paul prays. You know, most of the time we pray for us. How, how much of your prayers are just for you? God, help me and give this to me and make sure that, you know, it's us, us, me, me, me. Paul prayer, if you'll notice what he's saying, hey, pray for me. When he's saying pray for me, he's saying pray for me on mission. Pray that I'll get what God wants me to get done, done. You know, we're praying to almighty God. And it's like we, we use prayer as sort of like the butler intercom. Hey, Jeeves, can you bring me some more toast? You know, it's like, hey, butler, bring me something else to make my life a little more comfortable. I need some more ice for my tea. You know, whatever it is. That's how we use prayer. Where prayer to Paul is like a battlefield radio as he's fighting through the chaos to try to get another perspective on what's going on. That's the way we should be praying. That's what Paul is teaching us right through this. Think about it this way. If all of our prayers were answered that we prayed for last week, how would the world be different? Or would you just be able to find that parking spot that you wanted near your favorite store? That you caught a few green lights because you were late. Pray to change the world. Pray on how God will use you and me to change the world. So he continues here in verse three, he says, praying at the same time for us as well. That's, hey, you can pray for us. That God will open up to us a door. And what, when he says this story, he's saying a door of opportunity, a door that we, that we can walk through some way forward that we can see in the chaos where we can go this way and know that we're accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish. Open up a door for the word. He's talking about the gospel there. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. And the mystery of Christ, that's the gospel. Why did they call it the mystery of Christ? Because this is what people in the Old Testament didn't really understand. They knew there was a big problem. They had a sacrificial system. It was only temporarily. They didn't really see the big picture. They knew Messiah was coming, but they didn't know the half of it. That's the mystery of Christ, the gospel, for which I have also been imprisoned, he's saying. He's asking for prayer. He's wanting us to help him. And, and then he says, hey, you know, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Here's Paul praying. Paul, who wrote a bunch of the New Testament saying, hey, by the way, when you're praying for me, make sure that when I'm talking, I'm making it clear. This is a legit prayer. I don't know if you remember but Peter, when he wrote his book, said, hey, you know that Paul guy? You know, he says a bunch of, you know, and his letters, it's a bunch of stuff that are hard to understand. Here's what he says in 2 Peter 3.15. Also, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand. You know, I don't know if Peter told Paul that, because actually Peter writes this about six years later, but Paul gets, hey man, sometimes I can get a little heady and people don't really understand what's going on. Make it clear. 
He's saying, make it clear so I can share with people the gospel, he's saying. Clear in the way I ought to speak. How to change the world? Well, it starts with just three ways. It starts with praying hard. Praying hard. We take it for granted. Praying hard. We have an audience with the king of the universe. He invites us to pray. We take it for granted. Pray hard, Paul's saying. Second, how do we change the world? Talk Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Here's what he says in verse five. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. He's saying, hey, be smart. Look for those opportunities. Figure it out. Making the most of the opportunity. He's saying, be wise. Make the most of the opportunity toward outsiders. Live in a way that you can impact non-believers. Live in a way that non-believers respect you as a believer. Leave them a favorable impression with the gospel. Be as well-liked as you can be while you're living for Christ, which is more important. So you can impact people. Why? Because we want the opportunity to share the gospel. And opportunity is fleeting. It comes and it goes. And when he uses this word opportunity, it's actually a Greek word that means to buy out or to buy up. Hey, you see something great deal? Get it all. He's saying get the opportunity. Corner the market on the opportunity. Look for every single opportunity, he's saying. Because we should be thinking and praying. Lord, who are you going to use me to impact for the kingdom? Who's my just one more today? Who is that? How can I impact? What should I do? Besides just going through the motions of my normal life, how can I tune in to what you actually have me here for while I'm working my job? How can I make a difference and we, we waste opportunities all the time. We waste opportunities. And he's telling us here, use every opportunity. Conversation. You know, when we're talking to people, we're, we're trying to figure out, wait, how, how do we shift this conversation to God? Which is really the only thing that matters. How do we do that? You know, people are talking about, people talk about their health a lot, especially people my age. We talk about, yeah, here's what I got now, here's what I got now. You know, and then sometimes when that gets serious is, is you could just say, well, what do you think, you know, we're, yeah, we're all gonna die sometime. What do you think's on the other side? What do you think's gonna happen next? Or you put a sign in your yard or you wear a t-shirt like Mike was talking about. Why? So people say, what's that? And the more people they see wearing it, the more inclined they're gonna say to you, your friends are gonna say, what's that? Oh, that's my church. You ought to come. You ought to check it out. I love my church. Use every opportunity. You know, when things are difficult, when, when, things, when life gets haywire, when life gets chaotic, you know, cut through all that with your friends. Help them to see the bigger picture. Help them to see how this ties to morality and God and us being made in his image, that there is a God, that he loves us, all those things. We can do that. That's, that's what he wants from us. 
He continues in verse 6. He says, let your speech, and this is, by the way, to share, to impact people, we have to use our mouths. You know, decades ago, people were saying, well, you don't really need to share your faith with anybody, you just live a good Christian life and when you're sitting at the restaurant and somebody notices that you didn't order any hard liquor, they'll think that you're a believer and that's, that's your testimony. No, that ain't it. Let your speech talk about Jesus. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. Super interesting term here, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. Hey, salt brings flavor. As scholars have looked into this phrase, they're realizing, hey, we're we're trying to make it interesting. We're trying to be witty. We're trying to figure out how we can bring this up. Not just blast them, how to turn a conversation and leverage it for God's glory. That's what he's wanting. Strategically look for opportunities within a conversation to point people to Jesus. People are different. They have different needs, different things they're worried about, different concerns. Leverage that in your speech. Salt that in, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person, each individual with different needs. Figure that out as best you can. And if you're ever thinking, well, I can't really figure my friend out. I'm not sure, you know, how, what what really will meet his needs. Nobody knows that better than you. I mean, I'm not going to know that. You're his friend. You're her friend. You're going to know that better than me. Figure that out. Because you have a friend who is destined to go to hell without Jesus. And that should bother you, that should disturb you, and you should do something about it, is what we're saying. And of course, the easy way, the easiest way, is just to invite people to church. And that's, that's a start. And tell them you like your church. Don't invite them and say, yeah, it's a kind of a crummy church, but you know, you can come to it, check it out. I mean, it, it is church. I mean, it's, be enthusiastic about it. Tell them you enjoy it. That's what God wants from us. You know, next Sunday, we're starting a new series, as Mike said, Christian Atheist. And this just helps people get thinking. After that, we're gonna start another series on God's will, recalibrate. Both of these series, the beginning of series, you know, we always want people to, that you feel like you can invite people any Sunday. Any Sunday, we're trying to at least verbalize the gospel and you know, make it relevant for everybody. But like next Sunday, as we start this new series, hey, we call ourselves Christians, but we kind of live like an atheist. That, that will actually be a good series to even invite somebody new to, and we will be sharing the gospel. And again, the next Sunday, look for those opportunities, make it happen. And don't give up on them when they say, ah, maybe, and then they don't show Stay with them on that. Again, try to do it in a wise way. So how to change the world? We pray hard, we talk Jesus. Okay, test, are you ready? How to change the world? That right, that's right, you got it. Third, last thing here. We deploy as a team. Team grace. For you guys here, it's team grace. 
God intends us for all believers to be united together in a local church. And so for us, that's this church. God intends us to be together in this way. And we all have a job. Here's the thing, and I say this a lot, but I'll say it again. Not everybody sitting in here is a believer. And if you're not a believer, you know, you could just skip all this and just remember what I said about God coming to rescue us through Jesus. But if you are a believer, here's the deal. Every single believer, when you come to Christ, God has given you an ability. We call it a spiritual gift, or that's what the Bible calls it. Some way for you to serve in the local church to help the church be more effective in its mission. So what's our mission? You know, we're building up people. We're helping people understand more about Jesus, grow in their faith, but also reaching out. We do that corporately as a church, like through series and outreach events, but we also try to encourage our people to do that individually. And if you're not serving the collective, if you're not here at church involved in some service, I just want you to know, I'm not trying to guilt you out here. I'll let God do that. But I'm just trying to explain it to you. Here's what's happening. Our church is not everything that God intends us to be because you're, as a Christian, not involved in ministry. He's brought us all together here for a reason. And God's given us a lot of growth. God's helped us do a lot of things. But if you're not serving and you're a believer, we're not, doing, we're not as effective as we could be because God's put you here and you're not engaged yet. If you're not involved, we're not complete. And so then this next section, it's kind of a hard section to preach because as he closes out the letter, he just starts naming a bunch of people. And some of these people we know and some of these people we've never heard of. And so what I want to do is I just want to read through this, point out a couple things. But at the end, I want to go through who these people are. Does that sound good? Are you ready for this? So this can get a little bit monotonous, but you're going to hang with me, right? Because we are going to close out this letter, right? All right, you're with me. Here it goes. Beginning of verse 7 where we left off. He says, as to all my affairs, I'm the one that has to pronounce the names, by the way. Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. He's saying, hey, this guy's been with me. He can give you some more stuff. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful, we talked about him, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. He's from their church. He's from their town. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who's called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, meaning they're the Jewish followers of God that he's gonna mention here. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. He continues naming people. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, he's the guy who founded the church, a bond slave of Jesus Christ 
sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also Demas, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that's in her house. Okay, so all these people he's naming, these are people on the team. It's like they're on the grace team. Well, they didn't call it, they called it the gospel team. It's the Paul team. You know, they're all on the team and he's throwing out all these names as he wraps up his letter. And I just want to go through some of this. We have Tychicus, Tychicus, he's been named five times in the New Testament. He's always with Paul. He's always getting in trouble. He's a faithful servant. Wherever Paul's at, he's there. Onesimus, we talked about quite a bit last Sunday, the runaway slave who has come to Christ and now Paul's sending him back. We did the whole backstory last week. If you were interested in that, check it out. And then Aristarchus, he's a guy who we know from other scriptures, he traveled with Paul and he must have been bold because he stuck with Paul during all of his troubles. As a matter of fact, when the mob at... Um, Ephesus rioted, and, and that kind of brings a lot of these stories together. It was this guy, Aristarchus, that got thrown in jail. He's the one that the, mall, the mob grabbed onto when they were rioting, but he didn't quit. He was always with Paul. And then Mark is also called John Mark. He's a guy, very interesting. He's a guy that wrote the book of Mark. But remember, if you know about him, he bailed on Paul's first missionary journey. I mean, Paul gets a team together and they're taking the gospel to these places that we're talking about. And Mark, when it gets tough, he bails out and they complete their missionary journey and then he comes back and then Paul and Barnabas, they're ready to go to their, on a second missionary journey and as they stage that and get ready to go, what happens? Mark wants to come and he happens to be Barnabas's cousin and Barnabas says, yeah, we're bringing Mark. And Paul says, we ain't bringing Mark. Mark bailed. I'm not wasting my time on Mark. We got things to do. We can't be hindered by this. And the disagreement's so big that Paul and Barnabas split the missionary journey and they go two separate ways. Barnabas takes Mark and Paul doesn't. And now at this point, notice he's saying, when he mentions Mark, he's saying, hey, by the way, Mark's proved, by this point, he's saying Mark's proved himself faithful by the time he's writing this letter to the Colossians. And he's saying, welcome him. He's not the guy that abandoned us anymore. Now he's with us, welcome him. And by the way, at the end of Paul's ministry, he writes Timothy, the second book of Timothy. It's like the very end of his ministry. And he's telling Timothy, hey, come to me. And oh, by the way, bring Mark. Because he's beneficial to my ministries, he helps me. So Mark is a guy fully restored. So if you're ever somebody who you kind of did ministry at one time and you're hearing me talk, we should all be involved. Yeah, I did that 10 years ago, but you know, I'm not, and that didn't go so smooth or maybe that was in another church and that just kind of crumbled or whatever the case. Hey, God's not finished with you yet. Get back on the horse, make it happen, get back engaged, and finish well. That's what Mark did. And again, wrote one of our gospels for us. He mentions Jesus called justice. We don't know anything about this guy. 
which is great. He's a nobody like us, you know, just who's this guy? I don't know, but he's doing the work of the ministry and they can't call him Jesus because that's a little confusing. So it's justice. Well, great for justice. And then Epaphras, he's the guy we've mentioned several times. He's come up in this letter before. He's the guy that we believe met Paul in Ephesus and became a believer through all that rioting and chaos that was happening there. But he was from Colossae, traveled back to Colossae about 100 miles away and founded the church. And then Paul says, you're probably expecting him to come back too, but I need him here. I need Epaphras with me. And then Luke This is the place in the Bible where we find out that Luke's a physician. Luke's a doctor. And so, and he goes on to write what? He writes the gospel of Luke and he writes the history of the early church called, a book called Acts in the Bible. And then Demas. Here, this letter Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Demas is a guy who has turned away from God. And unfortunately, this happens. People who say they're believers, we find out weren't ever really believers. Here's what he says about Demas in 2 Timothy 4, that same book I was talking about earlier. He says, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Deserted Paul, went off to Thessalonica. And you know what happens in Thessalonica. I don't know either, but Paul knows. You know, he's gone. History. Some say they're followers. And then they bail when the going gets tough. Or the circumstances change. Or they can't stand up to the cultural pressure of the day. And they cave and they fold and they leave. And then there's Nympha which is a good reminder for us, be careful how you name your daughters. But there's Nympha. Nympha hosted a church plant in her home. We don't know for sure. We believe that she may be a widow, but what we do know is apparently she has money because she has a, a, a home that's big enough to host the entire church. They didn't have church buildings until like the third century. You know, and, and we think about us, you know, having money, Well, we can look around and say, yeah, some people in here have money by our standards. Of course, the whole world looks at us and says, we all have money, right? That's all by degree. Some of you are blessed with just, you just make money. God has given you the ability to make tons of money. You need to be making sure that you're leveraging a significant portion of that for the kingdom, as we all should. And then he continues in verse 16, he says, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Interesting that that, some scholars, that's either a lost letter or some that nobody's ever found, don't get into that. But some people speculate he could, this could be the book that we know as Ephesians when he's saying this. And he continues saying, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. He could say this to all of us. Take heed to the ministry which God's given you. Get with it. Stick with it. 
Make it happen. It applies to all of us because we all have a ministry from God. And what's the point? The point is that God has brought us together to change the world. One heart at a time. And it starts with your heart. He's brought us together for a reason. God did it then, and he's still doing it now. And that's what we're doing here at Grace. So how are we doing that? Well, we come together, we encourage each other, we preach truth, we teach each other scripture, we grow, hopefully, in our faith. We equip people, we help people. We have some uh, pictures of how we're doing that. Um, you know, we just help families. Uh, we've, uh, you know, help people move. We help people with, uh, you know, building stuff in their home. These are families in need that they're in crisis points. We're helping them solving problems. This is what we do as a church. It all starts at home. And then a little bit beyond our church doors, we help uh, other ministries that we're connected with, like Heartbeat. You know, we talk a lot about Heartbeat. We've raised some money for Heartbeat. Uh, we make that happen. But then we're involved in missions all over the world. We don't really talk about it enough. That's, that's my fault. We attack least reached areas. Here are pastors, missionaries that I know that I've been on the field with. The least reached areas, we have guys like Pastor Boone, we've known for over a decade. Utong, Pastor Salaitai, Pastor Macadangdang. Yes, I said that right. James Macadangdang. In the Justinianos, all three of those, Boone, Utong, Salaitai, Macadangdang, they're all in Thailand. Some of them Ministering like James McAdangdang, just love saying that, don't I? In, in Bangkok, in the big city centers. But then some are in the tribal areas, and then some are ministering. They're in Thailand, but they're actually ministering to Burmese people who are fleeing the civil war and taking care of them. Also, um, beyond that, we have the, these are least reached groups. That means, you know, less than 1% Christian typically. We have the Justinianos and the Daniels that we support both in Japan. We have uh, Tim Gregory in Bangladesh. Then we have other missionaries, like in the Philippines, we have Greg and Luann Lyons. We have Luke Lyons and his family. We have Dan and Tori Beaver there. In Germany, we have the Kearns. Not only are we doing that on a weekly, monthly basis, but we're also providing emergency food for people who have been bombed out of their villages in war-torn Burma or Myanmar. And we, or you, have helped uh, feed Ukraine, the Ukrainian refugees through a church that we were connected with with somebody in our church family. Just last week, we provided beds to children who fled uh, Burma, child refugees fleeing war. We helped build a church for the refugees. This is all just within the last couple of weeks. And then last week, a little closer to home, we talked about the floods in Kentucky, right? And what was going on there and how we can help them. And then we do this little thing called Dollar Club that we do once every couple months or so, right? And we did Dollar Club last time and guess how much we raised that we're able to send down to Kentucky, Clayhole, Kentucky, and that area? Over $20,000 we are sending to Kentucky. And they are there waiting for that. 
And, uh, you know, we're just excited to be able to do that. We're not just about the money either. We actually have... Um, an opportunity if you want to go down on like a 10-person team to muck out churches, clean up stuff, if you want to do that. We do have a team leaving a week from Monday, which is August 22nd, early in the morning, driving down there in our van. They'll be coming back Wednesday night, the 24th. If that's something that you're interested in, you can go to room one and see our pastoral resident, Joel, tall guy, thin beard, uh, see him or uh, Pastor Mike, and they're, they're going to be on that trip. So we are trying to change the world in all types of different ways, but it always comes back to what we're doing right here, right now. And then Paul's last verse in Colossians, verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. God has put us here for a mission. We, have, we are here to change the world. We can change the world by doing three things. What is it? Pray. Okay, you did that pretty well. And then talk. Okay, the last one, you'll never get it. You know, be a part of a team, all right? Team grace. Oh, that was pretty good. Yeah, team grace. That's what we're doing. We pray hard. We figure out ways to talk Jesus, and we come together as a team to make things happen in the world, and you all have a role in doing that. If you're a believer and if you're not a believer, we want to talk to you and answer any question you have. Let's stand together, and we'll close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for coming into our lives, giving us meaning and purpose. Father, help us to do what you want us to do. Lord, help us to go through the chaos of this world and save one person at a time. Point each person to Jesus. Use us in the way you intended, God. Let us get serious. Help us to pray hard. Help us to talk Jesus and help us to come together here as a team at Grace. And God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Help us to be effective. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Grace be with you. See you next Sunday.